This morning I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Old Testament Scripture to Isaiah chapters 43 and 44. Our text this morning will be Isaiah 43 verse 22 through chapter 44 verse 23. Isaiah 43 verse 22 through chapter 44 verse 23. There are three common themes among the ministry and message of God's prophets to God's people, Israel. The prophets, all of the prophets, rebuked God's people for their problems. And as the voice of God to the people of God, the prophets confronted Israel for every manner of disobedience and wickedness and idolatry, and they charged Israel with being stiff-necked and unfaithful toward the very God who made them and redeemed them. Secondly, then, the prophets also explained to the people of God, the human and or the divine solution to those problems. And the prophets called Israel to repent of their ways and to turn back to God. That was their human responsibility so that God would then deliver them from their calamity. That was God's divine activity. And then thirdly, the prophets promised Israel a future hope in spite of their problems, ultimately messianic redemption, because while they had been unfaithful to God, God had not forgotten them, God had not abandoned them, God was faithful to his promises to them. I'm mindful of 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithful, or even though we, I'm sorry, if we are faithless, even though we are faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God cannot deny his faithful character. And this morning, what I would like to do is I would like to to overlay these three themes from the Old Testament prophets. I would like to overlay them upon our scripture text this morning. Isaiah 43, verse 22 through chapter 44, verse 23. And if you notice the notes that you have there Uh, prepared for you and provided in the bulletin. These are, in fact, Roman numerals 1, 2, and 3 for you. And I'm overlaying these three themes among the Old Testament prophets, overlaying them upon this text. My premise is this. I've written there in your notes. While God's people may be unfaithful to him, and God's people have always been unfaithful to him, God does not forget them nor his promises to them. God will fully and finally demonstrate his faithfulness in the future redemption of Israel. And and this will make sense, I think, as we proceed through the scripture text. But let's begin with prayer. God in heaven, we humbly bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, acknowledging you as the almighty God. And we exalt you and we praise you for who you are. God, as we read through the pages of the Old Testament scripture, we recognize how that Your people have been unfaithful to you, and your prophets have confronted them about that, given them, offered them solutions to repent, and promised a hope, the hope of future redemption in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would go before us now as we study your holy word, that you would be our teacher. Help us, Lord, not just to consider the the history of Israel, but in fact, our own our own relationship with you even this morning. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Number one in your notes, if you're following the outline I've prepared, number one, the problems of God's people. The problems of God's people, and of course, we know that everyone has problems. 
Some problems are small, some problems are great, some are physical or material, others are relational and spiritual. Do you want to know what one of my problems is, or I might say just a problem that I had this past week, and just for the sake of telling a story and complaining to you about my problems, uh, I have a captive audience here for a few minutes, and so you must endure and listen to my problems. Here's a problem I had this past week. I, I received a letter. I received a letter some months ago uh, informing me about a recall that had been issued for an obscure car part in one of my cars. However, due to the global shortage of car parts, they, they would send me another letter when the parts became available. So, of course, in time, I received that second letter. It came telling me the parts are now available. And so I called the local dealership, and I scheduled a repair for this recall. They asked me for the case number on that recall letter. They asked me for the VIN number of my vehicle, and then they proceeded to schedule an appointment for me to come and complete that repair. The, The next day, they called me back to confirm the same information so they could get me in and out as soon as possible, and they scheduled my appointment for some days in advance at 7 a.m. in the morning, first thing. But being who I am, I arrived for my 7 a.m. appointment at 6.45 a.m., right? And then waited until 7.15 when they could eventually get me in, at which time they told me they didn't have the car parts that I needed, and so they needed to schedule an appointment for the recall repair to be completed. And I said, but in fact, that's what I did. I scheduled an appointment for the recall to be repaired, to be completed, and that's why I'm here. So this is what they told me. They said, well, we needed you to make an appointment to come in so we could schedule an appointment for you to get the recall repair." Unbelievable. I've, I've lost an hour of sleep now, right, early in the morning. My day is completely ruined. I have something to say about this, but here's the problem. Here's my problem. My problem is they know who I am. <laughs> now, how do they know who I am? Because they have my email address. My email address is pastor at fourthbaptist.org. <laughs> so I've got nothing to say. I have to be polite. And so now I am waiting for them to get the parts for my recall so they can schedule an appointment for me to come in early in the morning and get that fixed. You say, Pastor Matt, your problems are nothing. I have problems. And I don't mean to minimize your problems, and I don't want to to trivialize the, the inconveniences or the circumstances of life, but we have problems And that was my problem this week. Israel had problems. They had big problems. And the first of their big problems was letter A in your notes, worthless worship. Worthless worship. Nearly every prophet of God through all of the Old Testament scriptures rebuked Israel for the problem of worthless worship because it was a recurring and a perpetual problem. And in this case, God says to Israel, Isaiah 43, verse number 22 But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel, for you have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. Worthless worship was first, sub-point number one, it was a wearisome 
It was wearisome to the worshiper. And I'll put this here for you on the screen. It was wearisome to the worshiper. God gave Israel elaborate and extensive instructions regarding their worship in the book of Leviticus. But of course, we don't read the book of Leviticus very often because there's so much description. There's so much detail. It's wearisome to us just to read it let alone the practice of it. Hebrews 10 verse 11 tells us that every priest stood daily ministering in the temple and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. In fact, in one occasion in 2 Chronicles 7, King Solomon offered a sacrifice to God, 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep. If it weren't in the Bible, I would assume it to be a typo. 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep, enough already. For Israel, this was deja vu over and over and over again. Of course, they were weary of their worship. But if we understand this problem is not just a problem for Old Testament Israel, it's a problem for the New Testament Christian as well. I'm not always in the mood to gather together, to assemble for worship. Folks, there are some Sundays I'd rather stay home. I'm not always in the mood to sing the songs, all the verses of the hymn, while standing, Pastor Dan, right? I'm tired. I'd rather sit and watch someone else sing. (laughs) Pastor Dan as well. Good. I'm not, folks, I'm not always in the mood to pray. Can you believe that? I'm not always in the mood to pray, to call on the Lord as as Israel failed to do at the beginning of verse 22. And sometimes when it's time to give, I feel like I just gave last week. And here we are again this week. It's time to give again. And of course, I have no choice in the matter because I'm the pastor, that's my job, and you know my email address is pastor at fourthbaptist.org. We become weary, weary of our, our worship, and may God forgive us if, we don't, if we're no different than the Old Testament saints in the spirit of our worship. God's purpose was not to burden his people with worship. Look at verse 23, the middle of the verse um, I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. God did not demand expensive grain offerings and incense and sweet cane or the best fatty portions of the meat, verse 24a there. He he didn't demand these things to burden them or bankrupt them. God was not trying to fleece them for all that they had. It was never about the excess of their sacrifice that mattered. I would give you Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. But rather, it was the heart of the sacrifice that mattered. And I I think of the, the poor widow who gave her two mites. So rather than calling on God in verse 22a and offering right worship, which was blood sacrifice for Israel, it's as if they brought God their sin, verse 24b. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So here was the case. Their worthless worship was wearisome to them as the worshipers. It was burdensome to God as the one to be worshipped. Bible commentator J. Alec Motyer writes this. I've copied it for you there in the back of your notes. He says this. The sacrificial system was meant to 
meet the needs of the people as they discover their inability to live up to the law and their constant need for forgiveness and restoration. Thus, the sacrifices were designed for relief, for delight, for homecoming to God. By opting for a mere ritual and evacuating the sacrifices of their power, they remained in their sin and as such were a constant weariness to the Holy One. Thus, Isaiah's message in these verses is the same as back in chapter number one. God said he'd had enough of their worship, their sacrifices. There was much religious fervor, but no religious reality. At the point where they might have expected to please God, they wearied him. When they most zealously assumed themselves to be right, they were proving only that they were still in their sin. Which leads us to verse 25. I Even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. And so there was a second problem for Israel in their worship. It wasn't only that they were were worthless, but the second problem is they had forgotten forgiveness, forgotten forgiveness. And God is telling Israel how that he and he alone forgives sin. You remember there was a time, I believe it's Mark chapter 2, when Jesus was in Capernaum, a small village on the, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a paralyzed man was brought to Jesus to be healed. But he had to be let down through the roof because the crowd was so great there was no way to enter through the door. And Jesus said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious leaders were incensed at that time, asking, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right. God alone can forgive sin. And that's what Isaiah 43 verse 25 is telling us. If you're looking for forgiveness for your sin today, you cannot go to a priest, you cannot go to a pastor, you cannot go to any other but God alone. And when we go to God alone, he promises in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our problem as New Testament Christians is that we don't live in the light of that forgiveness. We forget that we have been cleansed from our old sins, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 9. And we doubt our salvation. And so our problem as God's people, whether Old Testament Israel, whether the New Testament church can be both worthless worship and forgotten forgiveness. And so what we do is we perpetually try to excuse or acquit ourselves. Verse 26, put me in remembrance. Let us contend together, state your case that you may be acquitted. Try to justify or acquit yourself. Your first father sinned and your mediators since then have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to the reproaches. I would say this, man can never justify himself. Don't forget this. God alone forgives sin. Man cannot justify himself. And so from the beginning, our first fathers, that may be a reference to to Adam, the first of the human race. Of course, Romans chapter 5 tells us Adam's sin plunged, plunged all of humanity into sin. Or this could refer to Father Abraham, the great patriarch of the Hebrew people. Both committed sin But in fact, every prophet, every priest, every pastor since then has sinned. All have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. So Israel, don't even try to contend with God and state your case, verse 26, because God will judge. And worthless worship and forgotten forgiveness were problems for Israel. They were pro- they're problems for us. But there's good news. And the good news is this. There is a solution. There is a solution And this is where we continue reading directly into chapter 44, Isaiah 44, verse number one. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord Yahweh who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun, there's a a poetic symbol for for Israel, which, which means the upright one. But, but Isaiah is presenting, God through Isaiah is presenting a solution. And the solution is these very same themes that Isaiah has been presenting through all of these chapters. God created Israel. God has chosen Israel. God is committed to helping and healing Israel. God has a solution, verse three, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. And so the first solution here to Israel's problem is the pouring out of God's spirit. God's spirit. Now, like water to a thirsty soul, or like rain to the dry ground, God will bless future Israel with his spirit. At, at first read, the, these verses make me think of God's pouring out of his spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two when the church was, was born. However, if we cross-reference this prof, promise to Israel in the book of Isaiah, if we compare this with Ezekiel and Joel's prophetic promises to Israel, I, I think we have to look forward to a time future Israel, when Israel returns to the land after the Messiah's second coming to establish his millennial kingdom. And at that time, God's spirit is poured out on Israel in a very special way, and she will grow like grass and like trees, as described there in verse number four. Verse number five, one will say, I am the Lord, Yahweh's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of, of Israel, The second solution, not only God's spirit, but God's name, letter B, God's name. They will be unashamed to confess, I am the Lord's. And folks, that is huge. Sometimes we're ashamed to be called Christians. We're we're people of faith, you see. Or we're religious, but we're slow to confess Jesus Christ is my Lord. In fact, Jesus warned, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever does not confess or denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. But we don't only confess his name, we claim his name. I am a Christ one, I am a Christian God is my father. He created me and he redeemed me. Many years ago in in 2008, I preached a series of messages on a Wednesday evenings, a midweek service here at Fourth Baptist on the names of God. And I also taught the the very same series a couple different times as a Twin Cities Bible Institute class since then, but perhaps I need to bring that back. 
And the premise of that series, as I fashioned it, was this. God has revealed himself to man by different names at different times so that man would know that God is his all in all. And the key verse that I I use in that series is Proverbs 18, verse number 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. We go to the name of God. We name the name of God. We claim the name of God. The God of heaven is my Elohim, my eternal triune creator. God is my El Shaddai, God Almighty, Adonai, Lord or Master, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, Jehovah Shalom, God my peace. But be careful, it's not just the name of God as some verbal cantation to repeat. It's the person of God that's revealed in the name of God that is the solution to our problems. That's letter C, God's person. God's person, which is verse number six. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Folks, another recurring theme in the book of Isaiah is the difference between God and the gods. Verse number seven. And who can proclaim it as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order of me since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. I have told you from that time and declare it. You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And and I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but this message needs to be repeated among ourselves over and over again. Verse number nine, don't lose me yet. Those who make an image, all of them are useless and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? This is absurd. Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Let them, yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. Verse number 12. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water, and is faints. The craftsman stretches out his rule and marks out one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass. He makes it like a figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Okay, are are you catching the satire in the irony of this? So an idol maker so that an idol maker doesn't run out of his idol material. He plants more trees. That's the end of verse number 14. And yet it is the rain that God sends that makes the tree grow so that the idol maker can cut down the tree and make more idols. You follow that? But it it gets even better. The idol maker and the idol factory, they actually don't need all of the tree or all of the trees to make their little idols. So they cut the tree in half and they use the wood to warm themselves and cook their meals. Verse number 15, then it shall be for a man to burn. He burns the trees that he planted that God caused to grow for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and 
bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. Warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, the rest of the wood from the tree that he planted that God caused to grow, he makes into a god his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Folks, this is the most ridiculous, absurd thing in the world. The tree that God grew becomes the fuel to warm and feed the man who then fashions the wood into an idol to worship it. What would would a modern equivalent be, you think, of something like this? I have a suggestion. We work hard to earn money so that we can sustain ourselves to work hard to earn more money so that we can buy food to sustain ourselves so that we can work to make money because we believe that money can deliver us. And it's a stupid cycle. It's a codependent cycle. Verse number 18, they do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. You burned half of the idol material. The other half you made a little idol. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it as an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He doesn't even recognize the thing he fashioned is foolishness. One Bible commentator has prepared a a chart that contrasts the false idols. This is on the back of your notes. I'm not going to project it on the screen. I don't have time to, to work through it. But all of the characteristics of the idols and the idol makers in the left column and then the implication, the contrast in the right column. And this is what God through the prophet Isaiah is saying to Israel. Israel, you have a problem. Your problem is worthless worship. Your problem is forgotten forgiveness. You have a problem But here's the solution, my spirit, my name, my person, in contrast to the other gods in the world around you. The solution is not the man-made products, but it's God himself, which leads us then, and we're nearly done, number three, and you have it there in your notes, leads us to number three, the hope for God's people. And as hard as the prophets of God were on the people of God, they also communicated such promise and hope. Verse 21, Isaiah 44, verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob, in Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. You see, we come full circle back again, and this is the hope of Israel. God created Israel for himself, and in spite of their unfaithfulness to him, he will not forget them. Some would contend today that God has abandoned Israel. 
that God has done with the Jews, the Hebrew people. That God will not fulfill his promises as he's made them to them, but rather the church has replaced Israel. Don't believe that for a moment. God is not done with Israel. He will fulfill his promises to her. Verse 22, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. And like a cloud your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord Yahweh has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, Israel, and glorified himself in Israel. The future hope of Israel and the future hope of us, we as, as Gentile believers, is the work of redemption. And the work of redemption is predicated not upon our faithfulness, because we are faithless, but upon his faithfulness. In fact, my message would be better titled as a description of God and not of Israel. You see the title there, to say unfaithful but not forgotten, is to speak about Israel. Perhaps we could change it more preferably, simply, great is thy faithfulness. Because this is about the faithfulness of God and our hope is fully, wholly dependent, not upon us, but upon the one living true God of heaven and earth who is faithful to us. Folks, we have problems. We have a lot of problems, worse than car problems, right? We have deep problems. We are depraved, broken, fallen humanity. We have rebelled against our creator. And we often, with empty tradition have worshiped him. We have followed after other gods. It makes no sense. We've been unfaithful, but great is his faithfulness. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven above, this morning we thank you and praise you for your faithfulness to Israel in spite of their problems. God, thank you for not forgetting Israel. Thank you for not abandoning your promises to her. Thank you, Lord, for your promises to us as New Testament believers. We look forward with hope, with surety, with confidence in the future redemption of of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we pray to, to come quickly. I ask, Lord, this morning, if there are some here under the sound of my voice that have not set their hope in you, that you would draw them to yourself and by your grace grant them the faith to believe In Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. For I prayed in his name, amen.